Well, hi, everybody. Good to see everyone. Happy Sunday. Glad you're all here. That was very exciting watching all the kids getting dedicated. Very sweet. Uh, I'm looking forward to that when my grandson does that. Uh, so welcome for all you on Zoom. Welcome, Jason Wilkinson. I hear you're watching from Portland. Welcome. This is cool. Today we're going to talk about something that I think is important, very important. We're going to talk about money. And by money, I mean your wealth and your possessions. No one's leaving. That's good. It's a subject that I actually like to talk about, and I talk about it almost daily because when I'm not at Spark, I'm a money manager. So I help individuals and families manage their money. And I've worked with all types of clients, CEOs, uh, athletes, um, lottery winners. Yes, that does happen. Keep, keep trying. And it's always interesting to see the different attitudes that people have about their money. Now money, we like it, of course we do, but we also need it because we live in the Bay Area where the average cost of a home here is 440% higher than the national average. I think this fact's correct now too. If you were to get a one room apartment in San Francisco, it costs now $3,000. Getting a yes. Now, the good news, this is actually a bargain because pre-pandemic it was 3600 So it, what a deal, right? Yes, it is expensive here, but we got the Warriors. No one else does. Amen. Yeah, we laugh how expensive this place is, but truth is it is hard. School teachers struggle to live here. Church workers struggle to live here. Even engineers struggle to live in this environment because it is so expensive. You see, money, it is a necessity, but it can be so much more. It can be a way to have fun, and that's fine, that's good. But for some, it can become an addiction where people just want more and more and more. So I thought maybe we would cover some of this and then we're gonna go into a passage in just a minute. Uh, just a minute. The first thing is, God does not have a problem with people making money. The Apostle Paul, he worked. He made a living, you know, uh, making tents. The, Jesus makes it clear in Luke 10 that the worker deserves his or her wages. And Paul, he reinforces, enforces this message when he underlines in three images his passionate beliefs in the merits of reward for work. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he says... What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? You see, God understands that we should get paid for our good work. And God does not have a problem with rich people. If he did, he wouldn't have had such a great relationship with Abraham, a man who had lots of land and lots of animals, a man who became the founding father of Israel because he had great faith and obeyed God when he told him to go to a new land. God did not have a problem with King David, a man after God's own heart, because he would do what God asked. And Jesus, he ate with the rich and privileged. He went to a, a feast, a wedding feast in Cana. And he was buried by a rich man, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus. But here's the thing. You know there's a catch. But here's the thing. For today, money can cause us problems. It can. It can consume us. 
Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 9 and 10, that money is not evil in itself, but the lust for money, the greed for that money is a root of evil, which can trap us in harmful desires and lead to grief and ruin. The prophet Haggai said something 2,500 years ago that seems appropriate for today. It says, you eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Sounds familiar. Why do we want money? Well, certainly for our basic necessities. But maybe... Maybe it's because we believe it will bring us happiness, that it will bring us security. It might make us popular, and maybe we believe that it will impress others. And when we get, when we get, when we get caught up in this need for more and more money, it can create problems for us. I see this with my clients. I see this with my friends. I see this within myself. We can act on our impulse and spend and spend, or... We can be like Ebenezer Scrooge, a self-hearted miser. Now, being frugal is one thing, but if the penny pitching goes too far and money is essentially hoarded or only spent on ourselves, then you have a problem. Jesus has a lot to say about money. In fact, he spent over half of his teaching dealing with the subject of money and possessions. Many of his parables are about wealth business and debt and city she discussed last week this to, this topic in her sermon on kingdom economics a fantastic and illuminating sermon one in which i encourage you to go back and listen to on our spark podcast one of the parables that city shared was on the shrewd slash dishonest manager and in this story jesus shared some enlightening words as usual right he said no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and Mammon. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Today, we're going to discuss a man who discovered something about himself, that he was owned. It was money. It was his possessions. It was his priority. It's what he thought about all the time. And it was where his heart was. And I think Jesus sensed this. This story is clearly important because it is in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of these books have this story. And the typical name for this story is called the rich young ruler, though you would have to read all three books to come up with his name. Because Matthew calls this man young, but Mark and Luke don't even mention his youth. Luke calls him a ruler, but no one else does. It seems that Luke wants to emphasize that this man is someone who is probably head of a large estate, you know, a large landowner with authority and status. And all three of these books call this man rich. And the chief concern among them was that riches and possessions do not satisfy and that wealth is ultimately the problem. So let's read this passage. We're going to be reading Luke 18 verses 15 to 30. 
and then we'll dive deep into the details. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the eternal age to come. At the beginning of the story, there's a man in a crowd with lots of people. There's the disciples, there's the Pharisees, and there's just regular folks who've come to hear Jesus. And you can't tell from the first three verses of this passage that this man is here. But he is. You should know that this man, who we call the rich young ruler, was not a follower of Jesus. But he clearly had heard about Jesus. He may have heard about his wisdom and his powerful teachings. He may have heard about the way that Jesus had healed so many people. This young man knew that there was something special about Jesus, so he joins the crowd in the background. And what does he hear? He hears Jesus rebuking, actually rebuking his disciples because they were trying to keep babies and little children from seeing him. And then he hears Jesus tell his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I imagine that this man is puzzled about what he just heard. And I think the disciples are puzzled too. And wonder, why are they being rebuked for keeping children away from Jesus? Well, the answer, according to theologian Joel Green, is really twofold. First, the culture was based on honor and status in the first century, and the pious and the rich were at the top of the social ladder. And the dominant ideology was that it was these people who had the best chance of being welcomed into God's kingdom, and especially for those people who had wealth, because surely, surely they were blessed by God. That's what they thought. And babies and children just weren't considered important. They didn't have much perceived value. 
I hope today you see it spark. Children have lots of value. They can come up here. They can run around. They even play in our band. It's a value. But in that time, it wasn't. So I'm sure the disciples didn't want babies and children wasting Jesus' time. At least that's how they saw it. And second, you need to understand that Jesus is on a mission. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's bringing in the kingdom of God, where Jesus wants to flip the values of the world and extend love and service to those people and social groups that are most often overlooked, like the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, like the little children who lack status. There's something about the helplessness of babies and children and their complete trust of those who love and care for them, which perfectly demonstrates the humble trust Jesus is looking for and has been speaking of all along. Jesus can see the heart of what it means to be in God's kingdom and children just somehow grasp it and reflect it. Okay, my first grandfather story. I love being a grandfather, and you just knew I was going to slip this one in. I see, I see my grandson, and I see this type of love and trust that Jesus is describing about these little children. When I see Tucker, this four-month-year-old, staring into the eyes of my daughter, his mother, let me tell you, he is bought in. He knows who feeds him. He knows who cares for him. He trusts her and will go anywhere my daughter goes and will cry and yell if he's taken from her. Believe me, I know. And that's the trust and love that Jesus is looking for in his kingdom. But this rich young ruler doesn't get it. He is confused by Jesus' statement, given his favored status, and probably asking himself, if one must receive the kingdom of God like a little child, how might a ruler gain eternal life? What else does he need to do to be included in God's kingdom? That's what he wants to know. So this man, he approaches Jesus with confidence, knowing that he's a man of wealth. He's a man of privilege. And unlike the little children surrounding him, these are the credentials, the very things that he believes gives him the right to see Jesus. And so he approaches Jesus and asks his question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question. In the Jewish world of Jesus' day, people regularly thought about the present age and the age to come. They, just, they divided uh, history broadly into two. The present age, which they knew was full of sorrow, of injustice, of oppression, and a lot of bad things happening. But one day they believed that the creator God would usher in his new age with a Messiah and a new day that would then, then dawn. And then everything would be sorted out. That's what the young ruler wanted to be a part of. He wants to live in this future new age to come. And what this man is missing is that with Jesus, this new age has come to the present. It is here so that suddenly we can find new creation bursting into the present world unready as it is. And we find out in this story that this young man clearly wants to have eternal life and get it on his own efforts. He assumes that a certain standard of performance now will secure eternal life for him in the future. What he's not grasping is that eternal life is received as a gift 
It is not re given as an earned right. What he's not grasping is that the kingdom of God is breaking into the present world and he can't even see it. What he's not understanding would have been clear to him if he had come to Spark last week and listened to Pastor O'Meara's sermon that, Jesus is the, that with Jesus, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's within you and breaking into the world. And as O'Meara said, the signs of it are kingdom stuff, love, justice, peace, and mercy. Quick side note. Some theologians view this young man as being a good man, an earnest man with an honest question, and he seems respectful. He even greets Jesus with the title, good teacher. However, some theologians suggest he comes across as arrogant and entitled because of the title, good teacher. You see, according to theologian Vincent Taylor, the address of good teacher is very rare in Jewish literature and is probably meant as flattery. Ken Bailey writes that this man is trying to impress Jesus with a compliment and perhaps hopes to be greeted with a lofty title in return, something like noble ruler. Because in this culture, one compliment requires another. However, there seems to be some tension in this story because Jesus does respond to this young man, but with no title at all. Instead, Jesus says, why do you call me good? And then Jesus insists that only God is good. This statement from Jesus about why do you call me good has yielded no end of exegetical wrestling, especially among those who hold both a strong Trinitarian view that Jesus is God and the view that Jesus was sinless. Can you see that? It's problematic. Theologian, theologian Ben Witherton provides a simple but a logical answer. He writes that theologically, Jesus is saying that the ruler's focus ought not to be on him, but on God. Just as Jesus tells his followers to pray, uh, they'll tell his followers to pray, our father who art in heaven and not dear Jesus. I don't know for sure, but Ben Witherington's view makes some sense to me. Just then, the young man, uh, just then, uh, Jesus then asked the young man if he knows the commandments you know, the Ten Commandments. And the man says, yes, I've, I've kept all of these since I was a boy, which seems a little bit, bit arrogant, does it? doesn't it? Since Jesus said that no one is good except God. But that's not the point I want to dwell on. I find it curious that Jesus only lists five of the Ten Commandments. Now, surely Jesus knows the Ten Commandments. We can all agree on that, right? And it's probably logical to assume that this a young rich ruler also knows the Ten Commandments. So why are only five of the Ten Commandments listed and why are they out of order? Joel Green writes that these five commandments all have to do with kinship and community relations. The middle of the five concerns material, the middle of the five concerns material possessions, the one that says do not steal. But even it, when understood within the context of the experience of Exodus, and formation of Israel as the people of God must be understood as a signifier of human relationships. For within its historical and scriptural context, the admonition against stealing is essentially an affirmation of the priority of the community of God's people. Do not take for yourself what Yahweh has provided for the whole people of God. Do not take for yourself what Yahweh has provided for the whole people of God. 
This provides the point from which Jesus can launch his own interpretation of obedience to the will of God so that his charge concerning the disposition of material goods on behalf of the poor must be understood as one, as an interpretive expansion of the Ten Commandments, and that two, serves as a behavioral definition of the community of Jesus' followers. Jesus' use of the table of commandments from Exodus 20, then, is apologetic. It defines the community of those who will inherit the eternal life. There was a lot there. There was a lot. It was packed. What I do know is that Jesus' interpretation of these five commands is significant. You see, Jesus is calling out our responsibility to care for the poor in our community with our money and our possessions. Pope Francis, he would agree. He argued that the worship of money is an idolatry that kills, especially when it occurs in the face of others' hardship. He continued on to say that this idolatry causes so many people to starve. That's a radical statement. It is. Because Jesus is radical about caring for the neighbor, about caring for the poor and for the other. And this has been his consistent message throughout Luke. I imagine that Jesus really looked hard, really hard at this young man after he had said that he had kept all of the laws. In Mark's version of this passage, and it's not in Luke's, in Mark's version, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Barbara Brown Taylor, a priest and theologian, says, Jesus does more than just look at this man. He also looks into him deeply, like a doctor making a diagnosis. He looks inside of him to see what the matter is, to see where the problem is. Jesus looks at him with as much compassion as he's ever looked on anyone who is blind or deaf or paralyzed, aching to make him whole. Then Jesus chooses his healing words with care. He says to the young man, there is one thing that you lack. If you want eternal life to be in the kingdom of God, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Well, there it is. There's the truth. There's the answer, but it's not what this young man wanted to hear. God wants his people to be totally dedicated to his service, to the mission of bringing good news to the poor and the oppressed. And it begins by following with all of your heart, with no other masters. But this rich young ruler, for him, the one thing is his money. This man now has the answer to his question. But after hearing all of this, the rich man could not do it. He was stuck. He could not sell his possessions and give to the poor and then follow Jesus so he walks away. Clearly, having lots of money was important to this man, and it stood between him and wholeheartedly following Jesus. This young man was not ready for this. What he was ready for was one more command, one more law. He could do that, but sell everything, give away his money to the poor and follow Jesus. That he could not do, so he became sad. Jesus then turns to his disciples and says that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. He said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Ben Worthington says that this statement is a hyperbole. Of course it is, suggesting that it's not just difficult, but it's impossible to pull away from the gravity and the attractiveness of wealth. 
And this applies not only to the very rich, like the young ruler, but to anyone who has money and wealth, which probably includes many of, of us here today. These are tough words. They are. They are hard to swallow, even as we hear them. Ken Bailey describes how people tried to soften our biblical text in the early centuries to somehow explain this away, to make it more palatable, to make it somehow possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. For example, some early manuscripts of our Bible replaced the word camel with the word rope by changing one Greek vowel, an I for an E. So while it may be impossible to have a camel go through a needle, it possibly could be done if you had a rope or a string, let's say, and a large enough needle. It would still be difficult, but not impossible. Here's another example that you have probably heard. The argument is that in the city of Jerusalem, there's a gate that was so low that to enter Jerusalem from that gate, Camels had to bend down and elongate themselves to crawl through that gate. Have you heard this one? Yeah, some people have. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I can't find a serious theologian who can prove that this story is true. Here's the thing. The purpose of the story of the camel and the needle is an obvious example of something that is impossible. And the camel was probably chosen for the, for the story because it was the largest animal in Palestine. And there was no way it could fit through a needle. Sometimes we probably shouldn't take everything so literal, right? But maybe we should take this saying a little bit more seriously. Maybe we should take this story a little bit more seriously. Many theologians, as I said, believe these stories were created a long time ago to make it easier to hear that it is hard for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. And I have to ask, is it any different today? Are we still hearing softer and friendlier messages about our money and wealth? Do we let passages like this just go in one ear and out the other? The disciples, they struggled with this message too. They looked at this, first, this ruler with their first century lens and saw a rich man that followed all of the commandments. What they couldn't see, and Jesus could, was his heart. Jesus knew what was most important to this man. He knew his priority was money and what that gave him. That's what he was devoted to, which is why it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's sad, right? But here's what Jesus says. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Ken Bailey says that this is the turning point in the story. Because entering the kingdom is affirmed as an action of God. No one unaided enters the kingdom. No one achieves great things and inherits eternal life. An inheritance is a gift, not an earned right. No one has rights in the kingdom, not even a rich person with all their potential for good works. Indeed, if Jesus had given the rich man a list of expensive good works to be funded or carried out, the ruler would likely have begun on them with great achievement. Rather, he is told that his best efforts are worthless in the achievement of entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom is impossible with men, but possible only with God. God is the only one that can make this happen for us. When you spend time with Jesus... He can melt your heart and change your priorities. 
He can give you the strength and the courage to make decisions that seem crazy this side of the kingdom. But these tough decisions are made more easy and exciting when you enter the kingdom. How could it not when you see love, justice, peace, and mercy? That's what Peter and the disciples saw. That's why they left everything and everyone to follow Jesus. What is impossible with men is possible with God. I don't know whether or not this man is ultimately saved, which is being a part of the kingdom to come. And yes, wealth is a stumbling block for this man. But as Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Truth is, we are all lacking one thing. It's human nature. Maybe it's money for you, or maybe it's something else. But I do know that God still looks at us and loves us because what is impossible with men is possible with God. I think God wanted to take this man, this young rich ruler, on an amazing adventure to enter the kingdom of God in the present, in his time, to do God's work with him. But the man wouldn't do it. I have to tell you, I struggled with the sermon as I read it and studied it. And here's what I've concluded. We shouldn't water this passage down. And maybe we should be more uncomfortable with the wealth we have, the way we view it, what we do with it, and what we don't do with it. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm not. I just want to make sure I present this passage the way I think it is intended and meant to be presented and let God speak to you however God wants to speak to you. This is a hard message, but I do think it's about money and how it can consume us and how our responsibilities to care for the poor, to care for the other is important. Maybe we need to clarify what true discipleship looks like. Professor and theologian Dallas Willard wrote a definition of a disciple. Here's what he wrote. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decisions to follow Jesus. When Jesus says to you, sell everything and give to the poor and then come follow me, what do you say? My prayer for all of us today, myself included, is may we have a miracle in our hearts every day where we have the heart of a child, where we listen for Jesus' still small voice, and when we hear it, allow it to change us so that we passionately and courageously follow Jesus on his mission to boldly love our neighbors, the poor, with our presence and material possessions. Amen. Friends, we're going to shift right now and go into our time of communion, a time where we can reflect on the fact that Jesus looks at us and loves us. And because of this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So as we take our communion, let us eat and drink and remember the goodness and this crazy love of Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was portrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The table is open and everyone is invited. Lord, I come. 